the next two weeks, I'm going to talk to you about the radical Christian code of honor. Today will be part one. And uh, I want you just to stop for a second. Think of the word radical. Radical means different. Uh, radical means that it is something that is uh, above, opposed to, you know, the run uh, of the mill, ho-hum, average, typical people or culture around it. So that's uh, that's key. I want to talk. I'm going to talk to you about the radical Christian code of honor. So just stay seated and we'll pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray this day, Lord God. Your son, Lord God, exhibited for us 2,000 years ago a radical life. Those who followed him, Lord God, as we see in the book of Acts, Lord God, they led radical lives and turned the world upside down. And Father God, you have called us to live radical lives, to be radically different from the world and the people around us. Lord, in a time where the church just sometimes seems so much like the world and so unlike you, I pray, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would convict, Lord God, would teach us the way of your radical code over the next few weeks, Lord God. And I pray that you would be glorified in it, that we would bring you honor, and that, Lord God, in bringing you honor, that you would honor us by inviting us to your table. In Jesus' name, amen. So open your Bibles to, um, we're going to go to 2 Samuel, chapter 19, verse 24 through 28. And the word of our Lord says, now, Mephibosheth. How many of you have ever heard of Mephibosheth before? Mephibosheth, you're going to know, you're going to, you're going to understand Mephibosheth over the course of the next few weeks. Now Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, came down from Jerusalem to meet the king. He had not cared for his feet, trimmed his beard, or washed his clothes since the day the king left Jerusalem. Why didn't you come with me, Mephibosheth? The king asked him. And Mephibosheth replied, My lord, the king, my servant Ziba, deceived me. I told him, saddle my donkey so I can go with the king. For as you know, I am crippled. Ziba has slandered me by saying that I refuse to come. But I know that my lord, the king, is like an angel of God. So do what you think is best. All my relatives and I could expect only death from you, my lord. But instead, you have honored me by allowing me to eat at your own table. What more can I ask? So if you look here, Mephibosheth is the grandson of who? King Saul. King Saul is David's arch enemy. King Saul hunted David down and tried to kill him numerous times for a number of years. Mephibosheth is also the son of Jonathan, who was David's best friend. When Mephibosheth was a child, his nurse was carrying him she stumbled and dropped him, and his legs were damaged, and he was crippled in both legs for the rest of his life. Now, when King David came into power, right, Saul was killed in battle. David was made king, right, in Hebron, and then brought to Jerusalem a number of years later. Essentially, when David came, it was customary for a king to kill 
essentially the descendants of his enemy to kill the descendants of King Saul. You see that, by the way, if you're reading the scriptures, you, you see this played out through the book of Judges. You see it played out in the book of Samuel, the books of, of Kings, of Chronicles. But instead of killing Mephibosheth, David showed him grace. David showed him mercy. And David honored Mephibosheth and welcomed him to eat at his table. Do you see that there? You have honored me by allowing me to eat at your own table. What more? What more? What more can I ask? So I want you to see this picture. The dinner bell rings. Ding, 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 ding. And here comes King David, a man after God's own heart, the giant killer, the man who killed his ten thousands, the greatest songwriter who has ever lived. He comes in all of his royalty. He comes in all of his majesty. And then he sits down, and his beautiful wife, elegant wife Bathsheba, sits next to him. Then comes Solomon. Why Solomon? He's got a scroll in his hand. Solomon is, is in deep thought studying the scroll. He's not even aware. He's oblivious to everything going around him. But in comes Solomon who then sits down at the table. And then comes David's daughter Tamar. This beautiful young woman. And then Absalom who is a, 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 a man without blemish. He's got hair that, after it would be cut, weighed five pounds. I, I think it was wet, but five pounds. So this handsome young man, Absalom comes and sits at the table, and then come all of David's other children, and Joab comes in. Joab is the, the general, the commander of David's army. He's tan, he's bronze, the muscles are ripping from his arms, he's got veins coming out of his neck. And then comes Abiathar, David's priest. And Nathan, the prophet of God, true and bold and courageous. And Nathan says grace. And then, with this beautiful buffet of the finest fruits and vegetables, the olives and the olive oil of the finest meats, lamb and beef and fish, the most delicious of breads. I'm making you hungry. This dinner table of privilege. Suddenly you hear clang, 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 and who enters the room but Mephibosheth? He's given the privilege to sit at the king's table. He is accepted. He is redeemed. He is welcomed. He, he is honored to sit at the king's table with the king's family and the king's honored guests. Do you know who Mephibosheth is a type of? Every one of us in this room.
We are all Mephibosheths. We are all a type of Mephibosheth. He is a picture of you and me. Welcomed, accepted, redeemed, honored to sit at the king's table. Folks, right now, here and now, this morning, you are a type of Mephibosheth. In John chapter 12, 26, the Lord said, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, him, my father will honor. The word there, honor, is, is tomeo. It means to place high value upon, to esteem and to regard with the highest, with the highest respect. For anyone who will follow me, anyone who will serve me, uh, you are welcome to come. And I will honor you. In 1 Samuel chapter 2.30, God rebukes the priest Eli, really for his complacency and not disciplining his two evil sons who would turn the temple uh, into something abominable. And here the Lord says to Eli, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in the in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. I will honor those who honor me. Mephibosheth honored the king. What did the king respond by doing? He honored Mephibosheth. God will honor those who honor him. In, in martial arts, you have what is called Bushido. And Bushido is, is the code. It's the code of the warrior. It's the warrior's path. This is the path of the, the, the Japanese samurai. And when, when you think of this code, you would think of it, it is a code of killing. It, it, you know, it is a code of violence. You know, it's a code of war. No, no, it, it is a code. It is essentially a moral, moral code. The code of the warrior involves respect, heroic courage, integrity, righteousness, personal dignity, dignity, compassion, empathy, self-control, honesty, sincerity, duty, loyalty. That's the code, the code of, of, of a true martial artist. You see people, they, they come in to the dojo or they, they take up karate or boxing or jujitsu and they take it up so they can go out and hurt people and be a bully. That, that's the exact opposite of a, of a true martial arts code. The true, the true code of the martial artist permeates their entire life. They are true to their wives and true to their families. They are true to the people around them. They are true to their God. When you violate that, you're no longer a martial artist. Jason uh, Carroll, one of my favorite teachers, he's a devout Christian believer and um, he's a wonderful martial artist, a martial artist teacher. He's down in Greenville, North Carolina. Jason tells the story of a man who was attending his dojo with these two children, two boys, and suddenly he didn't see the man anymore. 
And then one day the wife came in and said, I have to pull the two boys out of your class because I cannot afford to be able to pay. Um, my husband has left me. He's with another woman. So Jason said to her, no, the boys can come. I don't want to take them out. You don't need to pay me. And a few months later, the father comes in, and Jason Carroll, uh, with the boldness of Nathan, went up to him and confronted him. And he looked at him and he said, are, are you a martial artist? And he goes, he kind of said vaguely, oh, well, you know, I, I guess. He said, you're not a martial artist because you have violated the very code of the martial arts. He goes, you're shacking up with a woman. You've left your wife. You've left your, your, your sons. You've caused irre irreparable harm to your children, to your boys. You, you've broken their, their ability to trust to be able to, to live with, with security. And Jason Carroll rebuked them. By the way, this is on, on pif, page 58 of, of Jason's uh, book, JDK, Bruce Lee's Style of Martial Arts. But he's 100% right. It's like a pastor. I was saying this on, Sunday, on Wednesday night. It's so easy to stand in front of the crowd. I look so holy. Well, my pastor, he's such a holy... So it's so easy to do this and to be so unripe with God and the people in your life. You get pastors, right? They preach, they, they teach, but they violate the very code of honor that God has instilled in them. They're, they're frauds, they're fakes. God has given us a moral code that is much higher, much greater, and far more radical than the code of the martial artist. And that moral code is the Sermon on the Mount. It's a code of radical honor. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out one code of honor after another. And they are not just for pastors, they are for everyone who claims to be a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ. So for the next two weeks, what I would like to do is just focus, not, not on the entire Sermon on the Mount, that would take a year, and I preached on the entire Sermon on the Mount, you can go back to any studies that you can pick up on Facebook or YouTube or our website, you can look at all of those messages that were preached over the course of a year from Matthew chapter five through seven, but all I want to do over the course of the next two weeks, today focus on a few of them, and next week focus on a few of these moral codes that the Lord has given us. The radical moral codes. First one, the code of radical humility. And it is radical. In Matthew chapter 5, 3, Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The concept of, of being poor in spirit, the very word that Jesus uses here in the Aramaic Greek, is complete, utter poverty of spirit. Which means that you have no power to save yourself, no power to redeem yourself, no power to make yourself right with God, no power to make yourself righteous or holy or acceptable to God. And that is a tough pill for some people to swallow. 
Because it blows away every person who is self-righteous. Every person who is into religious self-righteousness or ritual self-righteousness. It blows away the self-righteousness of the Pharisee. Every person who thinks they can work their way to heaven. That you can somehow get to God through your own efforts. Is blown away by what Jesus is saying here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever had somebody uh, accuse you that your Christianity is a crutch? I've had people say that Christianity is your crutch. You need to lean on your crutch. It's because you're not strong enough to stand on your own two feet. Jesus is your crutch. His blood is your crutch. His cross is your crutch. I want to say this to you. I don't need a crutch. I don't need a crutch. Remember that that movie where they said, I don't need no stinking badges? Well, I don't need no stinking crutch. What I do need, what I do need, is an ICU unit. Because I am helpless to save myself. I am helpless to overcome my sins. I am helpless to live a godly life. I am helpless to live a righteous life. And I am helpless to live the life that Jesus has demonstrated for me. A life of love, a life of holiness, and a life of integrity. So essentially here, to take poverty of spirit and to understand it and know it, again, is to come to the place where you realize you need an ICU unit. You need, you need a, a massive God with a massive act to be able to save you. That takes humility to know that. In Romans chapter 12, 3, it says, Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself. Measuring yourself by the faith God has given you. Be honest. Now some people, honesty, you know, and it is to tell the truth. Honesty is integrity. Honesty is, is not lying. But there's another side of honesty. And that side of honesty, Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2. When David had sinned, when he had committed adultery, he wrote Psalm chapter 32 and Psalm chapter 51. But here he says, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. Isn't it a joy? Whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt. Whose lives are lived, and notice, in complete honesty. And what that's referring to is to come to that place of forgiveness, to come to that place where God separates your sins as far as the east is from the the west, to come to that place where he takes your sins and throws them into the ocean, as the prophet said, and puts up a sign, I'm saying this part, that says no fishing allowed. To come to the place where you can accept that kind of radical forgiveness, that type of, uh, of radical redemption, you have to be completely honest. You have to be completely honest that you're, you're, you're a sinner. You have to be completely honest that you, that you, need, a, you need a savior. So the first, first principle here of the radical code is the radical code of humility. And let me say this, 
when you come into the radical code of humility, God will honor you by bringing you to the table of honor. Number two, the radical code of grief. In Matthew chapter 5, 4, second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What grieves you? What makes you mourn? Your sports team losing the big game? Maybe getting a C when you thought you were going to get an A. Maybe your 401k being down 10%. Maybe you got a scratch on your new car. Maybe your customer decided to quit on you. Maybe somebody criticized you. Right? They attacked you with some type of, of verbal attack. What makes you mourn? What makes you grieve? Do you mourn over your sin? Or do you just ignore it? Or justify it? Maybe you have a bunch of excuses that you excuse it away. Or just bury it in your subconscious mind. Does your sin bother you? When you sin, or maybe you have some habitual sin of lying or stealing, lust, in your life, does it does it does it bother you? Remember when when I got saved, I was in the Lord for a few months, and one day I was in the fitness center working, and something bothered me, and I took the Lord's name in vain. And I remember how it grieved me. I had to go to a quiet place and pray. How much? How much? I just cursed the Lord that I had come to love, and I mourned over it. Does your sin grieve you? Does it irritate you? Does it, does it cause pain in your heart? When Jesus told the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? The Pharisee, he's fine. He's blind to his sin. He's okay. He has, he has no need. But his life, his soul is a mess. And the tax collector mourns over his sinfulness. He demonstrates this mourning and this grief and this pain that's in his heart because of his sin. Realize this, the greatest catalyst for change is pain. A lot of people right now, you're sitting there, and you know what, you got stuff you're struggling with in your life. You got stuff you're struggling with in your life. And, that, and look, it, 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 could be, it could be drugs, it could be alcohol, it could be pornography, it could be lust. It, it could be just your apathy for God. That you're just ap- you're apathetic towards God. How many people are not here in church this morning because they are apathetic towards God and could not get themselves out of bed to be here to worship the Lord? But it doesn't bother you. It, it, you, you don't mourn over it. You, you, you don't grieve over it. And then until you begin to, that's again the catalyst that brings true, authentic change. You're not ready. You're not ready yet for what God has for you and for so much more that God has for you. And it's till you come to a place of radical grief and you begin to mourn over the right things to mourn about instead of mourning over the wrong things that you mourn about. What do you want? What do you want? 
I want to be happy. I want to be successful. I want to be healthy. I want to be prosperous. I want to be wise. Nothing wrong with wanting those things. I work towards those things every day. I want to tell you this from my heart. At this time in my life, more than anything else, I want to be holy. I just say that to you from my heart and right here before God. And I'd be careful with what I say here because there'll be a lightning storm this afternoon. And if you see me get zapped, maybe I wasn't quite sure of where my motives were. But, and I'm not talking about being a holy roller. The holy rollers, they're, you know, oh, somebody said a curse. Oh, you know, just give me a break, you know. The neighbor next door is starving and you're worried about the person on the other side who cursed. No, I'm not talking about being a holy roller. I want my actions to be pure. I want my words to be pure, my motives to be pure. I want my heart to be pure. I pray that a lot. And it grieves me when I fail. I want to be able to worship him each morning when I come to worship or on a Wednesday night or on a Sunday. I want to come to be able to worship him in holiness. You know that passage from Psalms, worship the Lord in holiness? I want to worship him in holiness. And, and when I'm not living that, there's a radical grief. I want to be holy more than I want to be happy. I want to be holy more than I want to be successful. I want to be holy more than I want to be prosperous. Nothing again wrong with those other things, but are your priorities in order? Is your heart in the right place? See, the, the radical code of grief that honors God because we want what he wants. For he says, be holy, right? Because I'm holy. When you come to that place where you are radically honoring God, he will bring you to his table of honor. Number three, the code of radical meekness. In Matthew 5, 5, the third beatitude, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. When I first read that, I had identified, I <laughs> still am so deeply identified in strength. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a major part of my life. The strength, the strength of my character, the strength of my soul, the strength of my body. And when I read this, blessed are the meek, meekness is weakness. Meekness is being wimpy. Meek people are passive. They're people who basically fall for everything and stand for nothing. They are people who will say things like, oh no, you know, don't, don't make waves. So I began to, to dig it. Lord, are you calling me to be a wimp? Lord, I'm repenting from a lot of things and I'm changing a lot of things in my life. But Lord, going from, from this to going to being a wimp is not something I could relate to. And then I began studying the word prouse. That's the word that Jesus uses for meekness. And what it talks about is, it talks about self-control. About self-mastery. It's a word that was used by the Greek writers speaking of a charioteer who is essentially 
in control of the stallions, three, four stallions, horsepower. If you don't control those stallions, I mean, they'll run you right off a cliff. If you don't control those stallions, they'll, they'll take you to a place that you don't want to go. What does God call us to exhibit and exert mastery and control over? One is our body. Our bodies. Because you let your body control you, it'll destroy you. We look at our country with obesity. You look at people with, with again, food addictions, alcohol addictions. The body, I mean, the body has these crazy appetites, lust. And he, call, he calls us to, through his power of his spirit, to take control and to master our bodies and not allow them to master us. Another stallion is our mind. Our thoughts, right? Our thoughts just left to themselves. They tell us, the psychologists tell us that 85% of the average person's thinking is either aimless or negative. Now that's a little scary to me. 85%. They just, think of this. Think of this as you go through the day. Your mind, right? If you ain't taking control, it just goes. If you're not focused on something, it just, you think, I mean, all of a sudden you're, you're thinking about something that happened 10 years ago, then 5 years ago, then 15 years ago, something that happened yesterday, right? And then there's something that's bothering you that you just continue. Think about that. It's true. It's true of me. If I don't keep something in front of me, if I don't stay focused on something, my mind will just, will just run. Aimless thoughts. A lot of, a lot of negative thoughts. We are to, to take and exhibit a mastery over our thoughts. And then our emotions. You know, whether, whether you know, positive emotions, good. Negative emotions, fear, anxiety, worry, hatred, bitterness. Just emotions that can take control of your life. Can lead you to... Destruction can lead you to disaster. So again, to be meek is to take control of your emotions as well. That is the, the, the radical code of meekness. Is whatever you want to call it. Self-mastery, self-control, self-discipline. And taking control of this and this and the emotions. Instead of them controlling you, for when you take that radical control, when you exhibit and exert radical meekness, that honors God. You know the person who claims to be a Christian and is just, I mean, they, they are out of control. Their, their thoughts, their e emotions, their actions, they're just out of control. You can't glorify God. But when you, when you exert that radical meekness, let me tell you, you honor God. And God will honor you by inviting you to his table. Number four, the code of radical salt. So in verse 13 of Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by man. The main things that salt does, salt serves as a preservative and 
look, in the time of so many antibacterials, it used to be used a lot to ward off bacteria as an antibacterial agent. When it talks about us being salt, we are to be an, a preservative and we are to be antibacterial in a world of sin, in a world, right, that is infected with sin and can infect our own souls, can infect our marriages, can infect our, our children and our families, can infect our church, can infect our, our nation. We, li- we live in a country, America is a sick nation. It's, it, it, it's sick. And it needs a preservative. It needs antibacterial agents. And, and God has called His church to be that preservative in the world. To be the salt in the world. To take a stand for truth. To stand up for what is right. To speak out against what is evil. To fight against what is wrong. And maybe even to be willing to die for what is right. Edmund uh, Burke, he said this, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And they sit back and they do nothing and they say nothing and they stand up for nothing. And evil, evil just flourishes. Listen, if you're in tune with what's happening in our country right now, you've got to be bothered by the evil that is being perpetrated and being taught even to the youngest children in kindergarten and third grade in the schools. Have you ever heard of William Wilberforce? He's one of my heroes. William Wilberforce was in the English Parliament. He lived between 1759 and 1833. He was salty. He was radically salty. He stood against slavery. And he fought against slavery. And he spoke out against slavery. And I believe that William Wilberforce did more to end slavery in England and then basically put forth a catalyst which would eventually end slavery in the United States. He was a short man. They they said of him, he was a little minnow, but when he spoke in Parliament, he morphed into a great whale. He was a man of incredible courage, exceptional bravery. He He had... a tremendous force of, of soul. And he was attacked. He was egged. He was tomatoed. He was threatened. But he kept on fighting for the freedom of the slaves. His mentor. Does anybody know who his mentor was? Have you ever seen the movie Amazing Grace? Watch the movie Amazing Grace. Instead of some of the trash that, that geez, they, they put forth for us in Netflix and Amazon. His mentor was John Newton. Who wrote Amazing Grace. John Newton was William Wilberforce's friend. He was his mentor. You don't just want to say this to you about John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader. If you understand Amazing Grace, and when John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, let me tell you, he's a man who experienced true Amazing Grace. You know, some people come to Christ and, you know, their, their worst sin was that they cheated on the uh, eighth grade spelling bee, you know, and that, that was their, you know, a spelling test. This man, this man was a slave trader. He used to, Captain of a slave trip, go to Africa, they would load up the slaves, basically put them in three levels on the ship, and they would lay, they would lay there. The only thing they gave them, they'd they'd throw some water in there so they could drink. And then they would take that ship, and they would take it to England. 
And when they would bring it back to England, what would happen is many people would die on the ship. Babies would die. Children would die. Women would die. Men would die. And what they do with the bodies, they would pass out the bodies because they were rotting next to the people who were alive. And then the sailors would take the bodies and throw them off of the back of the ship. The sharks followed those ships from Africa to England. And he got converted. He was a slave trader. And he got converted. And then he became one of the the top proponents for the freedom of slavery in England. And he mentored, again, this man, Wilbur Wilberforce, who then, again, I believe, did more than any. He was salt. They were salt. They, They spoke out. They stood for what is right. They fought against the evil. That's what it is to be salt. And the person, the person in Christ will honor God by being salt. Do you know how many people would be in this church today had I not been salty through the years? Do you know how many people have left this church because of my salt? I'm telling you, we would have services going on here every hour for the next seven hours. But they got salted. Their feathers got ruffled. They got angry. They didn't want to hear the truth. They didn't want to hear the truth. When we are salty, God honors us. And when we are salty, he honors us by bringing us to his table of honor. Last point today. The code of radical light. In Matthew chapter 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do, you, nor do they light a, a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What is light a metaphor for? Well, truth. Truth. Yeah, light is a metaphor for truth. The Holy Spirit is involved in that without, without question. But the picture here of, of being a light is to speak the truth, stand up for the truth, act on the truth, fight for the truth. I mean, some again will even die for the truth. You know, there's again this, this mentality we don't want to offend anyone. We, we don't want to rock the boat. You know, Je- Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is truth embodied. He is truth lived. He, he is uh, truth essentially demonstrated in his death and his resurrection. But Jesus didn't rock the boat. He turned the damn boat over. And it is a damn boat, if you understand that. He turned the boat over. The fake religion, the fake religion of the temple, the fake religionists, the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees, he turned, he turned the boat over. He didn't just rock the boat. This, this 
who don't rock the boat. He embodied radical light. He stood for it. He spoke it. He demonstrated it. And then his followers went out and did the same thing. Look, look at Acts chapter 17, verse 6. Speaks about, you know, they, they left the upper room filled with the Holy Spirit and they turned the world upside down. Look, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. You know, it's, they left the upper room and turned the world upside down. Today, what you see in the church, the church is in the upper room and the world is turning us upside down. You know, churches that have embraced woke. I, I was on the, the, the phone a couple weeks ago talking to Lloyd Pulley, the pastor of Calvary Chapel down in uh, Old Bridge, and we were talking, and he was saying, there are even churches in my own group. I said, I can't believe this, because I knew Chuck Smith. And, and Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, I mean, he, he, he would be turning in circles in heaven had he known that there were churches that were under his leadership that have bought into woke. Woke is communism. Woke is socialism. Woke is something that is diametrically opposed to the very gospel of Jesus Christ. And churches are, are buying into this. And it's, 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 again, it's turning the church upside down when we are to be out there turning the world upside down. Oh, you think of the church today with, with all, I mean, just this town with our beautiful cathedrals or our incredible buildings, all of our money, our YouTube channels, our technology. And the world is in the church, turning the church upside down. The code of, of, of radical life, of, of radical light, is to be the people who stand up for truth, who speak out to truth, who live the truth, and who demonstrate the truth. And this, this honors God. And God will bring you to his table of honor. Uh, final notes. Another note from 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 6-8. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. Please notice that. He bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your father, uh, grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? He came to the king and he honored the king. And the king honored Mephibosheth. Sit at my table. Come sit at the king's table for the rest of your life. And I believe that when Mephibosheth died, he was escorted to the king of kings table for all eternity because he honored the king. Again, just final verse going back to John 12, 26. 
If anyone serves me, let him follow me. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Are you a follower of Jesus? You know, just be so careful today because do you believe in Jesus? Everybody, you know, are you a follower of Jesus? There's a difference. Belief is part of it. Repentance is part of it. But are you following him? And if you're following him, then you're going to seek to follow his code, radical code of honor in your life. You may not ever live it up, live it, you know, and be able to, to live it perfectly. I have not been able to. And boy, it bothers me. But you will seek that code. This week we'll look at five other codes in the Sermon on the Mount. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, I just pray, Lord God, as we sit here, Lord God, let your word, Lord God, stir in our hearts. Let these five, Lord, teachings and codes that you've given us to be poor in spirit, Lord God, to mourn over our sins, to be meek and take control of our lives, to be salt, to be light, let them stir in us, Lord. Let's just run out of here and go and get caught up in our day and go watch a football game or something. Let us just allow you, through your Holy Spirit now, to examine us. Because, Lord, you're, you're the only one who really can examine us. You know the motives of our heart. Sometimes we don't even know. Do your work in us before we leave here. Have your way with us. Make a change in us, Lord God, that, that will last for not only in this life, but for all eternity. Do your thing. For in Jesus' name, we pray this. Amen.